thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. Today's episode is sponsored by Wesper. Wesper was not involved in developing the content of this episode. Hypoglossal nerve stimulation to treat obstructive sleep apnea was FDA approved in 2014. Now, nearly a decade later, it has evolved and we have a better understanding of the nuances. While visualizing the airway during sleep endoscopy is a key element in patient selection, there are other ways to predict success with hypoglossal nerve stimulation. Here to help us understand this better is Dr. Raj Dadia. Dr. Dadia is an associate professor and director of sleep surgery and the CPAP Alternatives Clinic at the University of Pennsylvania. He is board certified in both sleep medicine and otolaryngology. Dr. Dadia's current research includes upper airway pathophysiology and sleep disordered breathing, as well as the cardiovascular effects of sleep disordered breathing. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Seema. So how long have you been doing this? How long have you been implanting these devices? Uh, so I started my practice at Emory University in Atlanta in 2015. So it's been about eight years. And um, uh, the practice with hypoglossal nerve stimulation has uh, steadily increased with uh, over time. Um, and it's sort of evolved now to a relatively routine part of the clinical practice. So how has it changed over the years? You know, I, I don't do any of the, you know, a lot of work with this, but I, I remember reading about how the incisions have changed and the devices changed. Yeah. So uh, several things have changed now over since 2014. I mean, the first one, practically speaking, was getting approved. I mean, I remember in 2015 spending hours on the phone with insurance just to get somebody approved for the procedure. But once a couple dominoes fell in the insurance game, now it's real, relatively rare to get a rejection as long as the criteria are met from the FDA. And they can just review that with the with the audience. Um, that currently is a BMI or body mass index less than 32, an AHI between 15 and 65 with less than a quarter central or mixed apneas, and uh, lack of complete circumferential collapse of the soft palate on sleep endoscopy, and age over 18. And those criteria have sort of become a little more liberal over the last eight years, but generally speaking, they've been sort of in that same ballpark. So that's been a big change is it's just, you know, actually ease of access for patients. The other one, as you mentioned, was the approach. There used to be three incisions, um, one in the neck, two in the chest. That's now been condensed to two. So that's shorten the operative time, shorten the morbidity as well. Um, those are the two major changes in the last nine years. Is there a little wiggle room with the BMI? I mean, I, I read some of these um, payer policies, and I feel like some of them are 32, 33, 34. That's right. So um, Medicare allows up to 35. Um, and most commercial entities, again, this is changing actually, I think you know, recently now, even, but most commercial entities as of last week were BMI less than 32, with some exceptions. So we have the established criteria, but I imagine that over time you've kind of developed this, um, I suppose, maybe maybe instinct or maybe you've picked up on markers that may predict success with implantation. Yeah. And see, this has been a driving force for me for, since I started doing these, you know, because it, it's interesting. You know, I'm a sleep surgeon. I'm a comprehensive sleep surgeon. And I do things from jaw surgery to throat surgery to inspire surgery. 
um, and I was prescribing CPAP back at Emory. And, you know, you look at your results and I'm pretty agnostic. I don't really care what treatment people get as long mm -hmm. as they're adherent and have good results. And, um, you know, the Inspire success rates were about 50% in my hands. And I was thinking to myself, you know, this is, I'm following the criteria, but only half do well. Mm -hmm. And I, I had to do better. It's, I mean, patients feel it. And every time a patient fails, a little part of me seems to die. And so I wanted to make sure that I avoid that feeling as much as possible. But it, it's, it's something that that's real. If you look critically at your results, you'll find, especially on patients' backs, the Inspire doesn't necessarily work that well. So you think, you know, how can we pick those patients who do better? So that was become a, been a bit, of, bit of an obsession for me since I started my practice. And and then this is like, maybe this is a good time to sort of talk about, you know, what we kind of what got us on this path of CPAP and how CPAP's not a therapeutic for me. It's a diagnostic. Mm. And, um, you know, what happened was there was at a meeting and somebody was talking about, I feel like during sleep endoscopy, when patients are really working hard, these people don't do as well with Inspire. I thought, oh, that's interesting. And kind of similar observations. And so I said, you know, we have this thing called CPAP, which is really a good way to measure airway collapsibility. Um, can that inform us about patients' baseline collapsibility, which might be indicative of how they respond? So I read some literature, and it's going back now several years that in, for oral appliance therapy or manual advancement devices, there's been now three papers showing that patients who have lower CPAP requirements mm -hmm. do better with oral appliances. That's interesting. I never really thought about that. And I thought, you know, oral appliances have a similar, I don't want to say the same, but mechanism of action by helping the lower airway. And I thought, okay, maybe perhaps, you know, that may be some similarity. So we looked retrospectively at several patients, to, this is between us and, and San Antonio group, and we found that patients, when you get their historical PAP data from a titration or autopap, those with lower pressures did better than those with higher pressures. We published that and that got us pretty excited about, hey, maybe there's a marker here that's not captured in BMI and, A and AHI and, you know, age, that's, that's really important, which is collapsibility. Um, and so we took that and said to ourselves, okay, this is helpful for patients that have CPAP, but mm -hmm. as you can imagine, I'm running a PAP alternatives clinic. Right. <laughs> and, you know, so it's like, that's great when they have it, but half of them could never get more than a night or two with CPAP or it was seven, you know, four years ago, or, you know, you name it, they don't want, they have claustrophobia, mm -hmm. you can't use it. So um, we were felt a little bit limited that we can only help certain patients. Um, and then this is where this idea of using the drug-induced sleep endoscopy uh, as a model uh, for PAP therapy came about. And um, I can talk about that next unless you wanted to mention something else. Yeah, no, I'm just I'm just picturing this because you're right. You know, it's one thing when you have somebody on low dose CPAP, and you know, it, it does seem to predict both success with oral appliance therapy or I'm learning Inspire. And so, um, but it also makes me feel like those aren't necessarily the ones struggling either. <laughs> so, it's you know, I kind bit. of well, yeah. I, I kind of wonder like, is it something during the titration study where you see that somebody tolerates a lower pressure and maybe their HI is a little bit, you know? above our goal? Or is mm. it that it's more reflective of, well, you know what, this is their degree of collapsibility. And if we look at their titration study, and let's say they don't want to do CPAP, and we see that they were well titrated on like five or six or seven, maybe that's reasonable then to say, hey, you know what, you may do better with this, with this, you know, implant. Yeah, Seema, thanks for, for that scenario where you have a patient that has a low PAP requirement, let's say in the lab. Um, and, you know, it, typically that tells me enough, and that's what our data showed. It didn't really matter mask type, whether it's full face or nasal, but if you have a low pressure patient like that, 
um, that's telling you the load that you're to lift is uh, not so heavy and that's favorable for surgeons. So then talk to me about when people aren't on PAP and we don't have the historical data to look at. Yeah, so that really, this is sort of the natural progression of our research. We mm. thought, okay, well, if you don't have CPAP, uh, can we use DICE, which everybody has to go through for Inspire, to trial CPAP? And that's where we developed this thing called the pharyngeal, or at that time, palatal opening pressure, which is nothing more than a minimally effective therapeutic PAP based on the visual exam. So imagine you have a scope in the airway, you're looking mm. at the pharynx, you apply a CPAP machine. We just got you know, from the sleep lab at Emory, you borrowed a machine and you got this mask with a bronch adapter that you could pass the scope you know, through the CPAP interface. So you got the scope through the interface. You're seeing at that point, we just had a CPAP machine that was auto PAP from five, four to 20, hit the ramp feature and just watch the airway. The patients are obstructing. This is sleep endoscopy. So they're at a level of sedation where they're sort of like in stage two sleep. And you're watching them, you know, choke, obstruct, snore, desat, and then you apply CPAP and you watch in less than five minutes how their their airway opens up. And you could determine based on the CPAP level how early they opened up and what level that was. So somebody's opening pressure could be five and the next person's could be 15. Those are very different airways, even uh -huh. though perhaps on, on the video they look identical to you at baseline. They both have the collapse of the soft palate, a little bit of tongue collapse. But the severity as measured by the by the CPAP is quite different. So we looked at that in 27 of our patients that would inspire. And we looked at our responders and non-responders. It turned out those who were responders had CPAP requirements about four centimeters less than those that were non-responders. Oh, wow. Five to nine. Yeah. So that sort of told us. In, and when we looked at uh, BMI and AHI and other things, this information was additive in our selection. In other words, these patients did better than just using your standard criteria, which, you know, it makes sense. I mean, physiology is the bedrock of sleep medicine. If, mm -hmm. if you know something like this that you can't get from just an AHI or from a BMI that's fairly accessible, it should improve your, your selection criteria, and it seems to do that. So is this like a visual assessment, or is there like a pressure transducer? Is there like a flow? Like, how do you, how do you figure that out? Yeah, so at the at the basic level, um, the way we did it in our first paper was just looking at the video. So you can imagine in the OR, you've got the scope and the scope has a video you know, monitor. Mm. And from there, you can, as you increase CPAP, you're reading off on the little, you know, the digital inset, what the number is. And you say, okay, airways open, basically you stop snoring. That's how I would determine the abolishment of snoring tells you there's no more flow limitation. And the mucosa are no longer opposed to each other. So there's mm. a space between, let's say, the soft palate and the posterior pharyngeal wall. It doesn't have to be large, but it's stable. And that's really what you want in, in an airway, that it's stable and it's open. That's your opening pressure. And that's we actually did a paper on this recently where we compared that visual assessment to flow. Now we now have airflow, which I can talk about. But if you if when you look at airflow versus the vision, the visual assessment, they're within a centimeter of water pressure, which means they're fairly oh, wow. okay. relatable. Yeah. So that, that, that was helpful because again, I think one of the things, well, right now at, at Penn, we have all kinds of gadgets in our <laughs> OR thing, thanks to some funding mechanisms. And that's not, the point is really not to be this ivory tower or we do these things that nobody else can do. It's how does anybody else do it? And knowing that if you just have a CPAP machine mm -hmm. and, a, you know, you can get similar values to of this opening pressures. 
Well, you answered. So that was my question. You know, I, I practice in Fargo and I'm trying to envision, you know, how much equipment this would take. But what I'm hearing from you is the mask, right? The CPAP mask, the bronc adapter and a CPAP. You got it. Okay. That, that's it. Those are the three things. And it turns out that uh, one of uh, actually our, my first fellow at Penn, his name is Mike, Dr. Mike Hutz. He's now at Rush. He published a paper showing that you can do this for 20 bucks. He joke, 20, <laughs> 20 bucks a FOP. FOP stands for pharyngeal opening pressure. But for 20 bucks, you can get the, that equipment. I mean, the CPAP machine, of course, is a fixed cost, but sure. they have disposables. And with COVID, we were using a viral filter as well. But you mm. know, think about tubing viral filter and mask for 20 bucks. Okay. So that's, that's interesting. So would this ever be one of these um, reasons for you not to move forward? So let's say they meet all of the criteria, right? They, they otherwise don't have concentric collapse. Um, everything fits except they need a pressure of like 12. Would that make you not want to implant them? You know, Seema, it's like, it's like anything else. There's no, I mean, as much as I love FOP because we we created this (laughs) term, you know, uh, there's, there's no singular feature that's going to tell you the answer. And I'm still, you know, so for example, if the, if the opening pressure at the tongue is 12, Mm. but we're talking about hypoglossal nerve stimulation, which moves the tongue. Um, we have patients in whom the, that pressure of 12, they did just fine because it was the tongue that was the driver of collapse. Okay. You know, so I, we have to think about those two things, the mechanism and the severity. So if the mechanism of collapse is not the tongue, let's say it's the sidewalls, and I require a lot of pressure, that patient will not respond to Inspire. That makes sense. Because you're, you're, yeah, you're affecting a different target organ. It's like my knee hurts and I do, you know, toe surgery. It's sort of like that idea. Where, what is the underlying pathophysiology, which we try to understand with our DICE uh, visual exam. But isn't, that part of, of that, the but isn't that part of when you're, when you're trying to look at concentric collapse versus non-concentric? Like if you have that sidewall moving in? Yeah, that's part of it. The Definitely lateral walls are part of that concentric collapse picture, but sometimes you see lateral walls that are lower down toward mm. the tongue that aren't part of, you know, technically this is CCC of the soft palate or the velum. So you can have lateral walls that are coming into play lower down. Um, and that's a bit of a different picture. Mm. But again, somebody that has high pressure requirements with that kind of phenotype, I would not want to implant either. So it sounds like this would allow you to have a really informed discussion and conversation with the patient sort of arounding, uh, around expectations. And I imagine that maybe there's a little level of disappointment if, if you come back and you tell them that, yes, they meet these criteria, however, you think they may not ultimately be successful. That's right. And I think, you know, we all use clinical judgment. You know, there are guidelines for various things that we do, but, you know, we have, again, this has not yet been fully codified Mm -hmm. or a criteria yet by the FDA, but, you know, there are now, we have some data showing that these things do matter. And I think in the end of the day, you've got patients, let's say a 70 year old man with PTSD, can't put a mask on his face, has no teeth, well, your options are pretty limited as far as what you can offer him for severe sleep apnea. And in these patients, I will tell them, this is what I think is going on. And this is, you know, your expectation. Maybe your opening pressures are really high and you're not the perfect candidate. At least we can temper expectations to say, hey, our AHI may not go from 50 down to five, but maybe we cut it in half or we get a partial response and we add positional therapy or something else, you know? And I think that's really helpful for the clinician and the patient to guide expectations before surgery. Well, and I think that's so much about the art of what we do, 
right? It's not all cookie cutter. And sometimes we do a little hybrid therapy with an oral appliance and a CPAP, for example, or something like that. So, so it's nice to have another data point, you know, that you are able then to really set those expectations for, for your patients. That's right. And I think the other example is a patient who's adherent to CPAP, mm. you know, and I always tell them, guys, your bar is really high because you're already using therapy, you're adherent, you've got great residual AHIs. I better be darn sure I'm going to help you with the surgery, mm -hmm. you know? And if that patient now becomes, you know, tongue-based collapse with a FOP of four centimeters of water pressure, I'm pretty excited about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll say I think you really are a good candidate. And I, I sleep well knowing that I'm going to offer surgery, but I feel very confident that they're going to do well with it. And so I think that's right. Another data point where we can speak, you know, with some confidence about what to expect after uh, therapy. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about hypoglossal nerve simulator implantation. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. With Wesper, sleep management is so easy. You could do it well in your sleep. Wesper delivers a powerful sleep management platform built to address sleep conditions from testing through ongoing care. From home sleep apnea testing and sleep disorder testing to remote patient monitoring, patient titration, outcome management, and much more. It's sleep management made easy. Learn more at wesper.co. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Raj Dedia about hypoglossal nerve stimulation and some of the predictors of success. So you look at all of your own raw data, right? And you're pretty passionate that all otolaryngologists should be doing this. Um, so I think that's wonderful. I applaud that. What specifically is it about the polysomnography that helps you better understand their physiology? Yeah, Seema, I know I'm, I'm a bit out there with this, and my trainees know this, but I think now they, I would say we brainwash them. They believe this too. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, surgery is high stakes. And, um, you know, I don't take surgery lightly. Um, and I want to be really confident that I'm going to, as much as I can be to help a patient. And too many times in my practice, I get patients referred from outside or inside, you know, our system that are coming in with OSA from a sleep study. And I repeat a sleep test because it's three years old. And lo and behold, they have central hypopneas or central apneas. Uh, and that really changes your management because in other in the situations, that person's now on their way to a dice. Mm. Their dice looks like AP collapse, like it typically does. And they're on, they're having Inspire. So after having been burned a few times early in my career, I said, I really don't want this to happen. And so I've started to really, really engage with sleep study and look at flow patterns and really be sure that destructive pathology. Um, so there's really two things that I think are really helpful for an otolaryngologist when they're looking at a sleep study. The first is really the go, no-go decision node. Do they have obstructive pathology? And that's not always so clear, especially if you have some poor signals mm. or degraded signals. You know, you may not be able to see if, if they're mouth breathers, what looks to you like a obstructive event or obstructive apnea could be a central hypopnea where they're still moving some airflow, there's still some movement in the rip belts. Um, but there are other features that, that you know that we know that this is a central phenomenon. For example, it gets better in REM mm. or you know, the desaturation profile is, is quite, uh, it's a waxing waning pattern. And you look at their history and there's atrial fibrillation. I mean, I saw a patient last week, 65 year old guy with AFib coming for Inspire. 
and we repeated a sleep study and he had central hypopnea. Ah. Um, so that patient could easily have been implanted. But when you look carefully and you kind of really start to uncover the story, not much snoring from the bed partner, um, you know, other things that might tip you off and you look at you know, the ejection fraction was, was reduced in this guy actually. But so I think there's ways to sniff it out, but I think the sleep test is a cornerstone for your d- diagnosis. So that's one. I think that's a really important one is CPAP works in half people with central sleep apnea. Let's not forget. So you can get away with being a little bit, I'll use the word sloppy with the sleep reading because you know that the therapy you're going to use may still work. Mm. And if, you know, so that's the difference, I think, when you're not talking about surgery. The other thing that's kind of really cool is that we can start to pick out collapse sites from the flow tracing. Huh. Yeah. And this goes back, I would say Andrew Wellman really helped get this off at Harvard um, and looking at some of the work they did with just flow shape. And, you know, now we can pick out pretty clearly something called expiratory palatal collapse based on what we call it a square root waveform on expiration or in epiglottic collapse from what we call it, what's been called inspiratory pinching, where you look at the waveform in early inspiration, you see this spike and wave, not a seizure. Uh, it's just in the flow pattern that you see that this change uh, represents usually epiglottic collapse. And now that we do sleep endoscopy, we do 10 a month with simultaneous airflow and video, we can correlate these flow shapes very easily now to our video. So now it's sort of become part and parcel of how we look at a sleep study, the sleep endoscopy, you can combine the anatomy and physiology. And so when I'm reading a sleep study, I'm looking for what we call negative effort dependence, which is where you see this inspiratory curve that goes up and you see sort of a cookie bite shape out of the tidal volume and it goes up. That's usually lateral wall collapse. So you can start to look at the sleep study in a whole different lens because I'm thinking, what is the anatomic? What is the underlying problem? What is the collapse I'm trying to deal with? And looking at a sleep study, we always comment on flow shape to indicate the collapse site. And the, and the neat part is, generally speaking, that correlates with our sleep endoscopy when we do it, that, okay, we thought it was epiglottic collapse, there's epiglottic collapse on, on the sleep endoscopy. So then when you're looking at the raw data, is it all about identifying those central hypopneas or is there more to it? So the first thing is identifying central diathesis or features that are not obstructive. And that's in the typically looking at airflow in conjunction with your thoracoabdominal belts. And you can also look at things like REM predominance or in some cases non-REM predominance to tip you one way or, or another. So we look at that to see, are there, was there missed as most places obstructive hypopnea is a default hypopnea, but do we have enough evidence from the recording of the site in fact is central? which again happens pretty commonly now in my clinic. Remember the average age for Inspire patients is about 60, 65 in most places. And so you have older populations mm. who are more prone to these types of problems. Again, heart history, those things. So that's perhaps why we're seeing it more is in otolaryngology is because our age of, of, of patients has increased. And so we gotta be extra uh, aware of, of that phenomenon. So that's interesting. I don't know that I knew that, that that was the average age for, for implantation. Mm-hmm. Does it have to do with the idea that Medicare approved it early? Yeah, I think that's right, Seema. I think that's part of it. At least at Emory, that was my, you know, eight years ago, they were all Medicare patients so huh. because of the age. But then the other thing I will tell you is we know this now, even from our own research, that younger patients typically have more of an anatomic driver of sleep apnea and older patients, the neuromuscular tone or the lack thereof seems to be driving it. So a lot of our women who are postmenopausal were coming in, didn't have this problem 20 years ago. And 
we now have data showing these ones often do best with Inspire is your older women because mm. it's really a neuro neuromuscular problem. You're trying to restore that neuromotor tone as opposed to overcoming somebody with a small jaw or large tonsils, which is usually earlier in in, the, in their adult life. <clears throat> so I think it's a bit of a it's a bit of insurance. It's also a bit of patient selection. Hmm. You know, putting an implant in a 20 year old, I'm not excited about going back <laughs> no. every 10 years. You know, for battery change, let's say, yeah. or if you know new therapy comes along, and they don't want that either. So I think that's also why the patient selection favors older patients. So tell me more about what you pick out on a on a PSG. Yeah, so this has been work started really, I think, with Andrew Wellman's group at Harvard, where they looked at different flow shapes to associate with different anatomic collapse patterns. And there's three in particular that I comment on every one of my sleep studies that I read. One is whether you see something called inspiratory pinching. So next time you guys are reading a sleep study or, you know, PAP titration study with good flow channels, make sure you unfilter your signals. You don't want anything smoothed out. You want the raw data. So unfilter your signals and take a look and you'll find something where maybe you'll see the an early inspiration, a spike, and then a wave uh, on the flow channel, uh, that's often associated with epiglottic collapse. Or you might see a cookie bite or Batman ears where you get this nice early peak inflow and then a drop or a cookie bite and then a return at the end. That's typically called that negative effort dependence. So over the course of inspiration with increasing driving pressure, you're actually losing ventilation. Uh, that's often associated with lateral wall collapse. Um, and the third feature is when you see at the end of inspiration, early expiration, a square root sign where the airflow is being pushed out of the mouth instead of the nose. And that's when the palate closes on expiration or expiratory palate collapse. So these are the three features we can see on a sleep study when you're looking at the waveforms. So does that fit with when patients describe that, that they're puffing at night? Yeah, it's kind of fun. One of the things I love to do is I, I'll ask patients after a sleep set or a sleep endoscopy, I'll ask, <coughs> excuse me, the partner and say, hey, did you, do you notice this, that his mouth is agape or he does his puffing sound? And uh, generally speaking, it corroborates that they no say, way. Yeah, he, he does do that. Yeah. Huh. So it, it's kind of neat because you've got the sleep study. And, you know, one of the things we always question is the sleep endoscopy under propofol. Is that really natural sleep? Right. And one way we can do that is we compare our signals on sleep study to sleep endoscopy because remember we have airflow in both in our setup at Penn. And the signatures are pretty fairly consistent where you see one thing, you'll see it on the sleep endoscopy. And I realize sleep endoscopy is only 10, 15 minutes versus you know eight hours, but you get these sort of hallmarks uh, sprinkled in throughout both studies. And then can you, do you still see those, still, uh, those same signatures with like a flow-based home sleep apnea test? Yeah, so I was saying if you we now we now use Clevemed, um, so for a lot of our home sleep tests, so I unfilter the signal. It's got a pretty good PTAF signal, huh. um, and you can see it. It's like anything else, right? If you're not looking for it, you right. smooth over it with your eyes and with the filters, you never see it. But because we're actually looking at it, if I did palate surgery and they still have you know lateral wall collapse, I feel like okay, that was not the goal of the surgery. <laughs> to, you know, kind of look for these things to, if I'm looking for post-op outcomes, especially um, or planning surgery, you know, if I, if I see epiglottic collapse, I see I've got a patient tomorrow, we're doing a sleep endoscopy on who has epiglottic collapse. And he believes that this problem based on his symptoms of feeling like he's drowning when he's mm. with his dreams, or he tucks his neck into his chest and he can't breathe. And we saw it on, on the, on the PSG. And now we hope to see it tomorrow on the dice. And if you've got both of those, I feel pretty confident offering the procedure to treat it. 
Oh, how interesting. You know what this reminds me of when I was a resident, we had this like cardiologist, this legendary cardiologist that could look at any EKG and never look at the demographics and could tell you this is middle-aged male. This is, you know, a young female or whatever it was just based on sort of these signatures that he would pick out of the, out of the EKG. Hmm. So it kind of, this is what it, it just reminds me of that, that, you know, you can, you can, I mean, obviously not the same, but just that it's almost like a certain fingerprint, right? A certain signal that tells you something very specific. Yeah. And I'm sure you think about this all the time is that, you know, we have these, you know, 12 channels that are washing over us for eight hours. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no way that you, I or any, you know, this is why AI is interesting, could pick up on all these things. But, you know, my focus as a sleep otolaryngologist is really on, you know, four channels usually. It's the PTAF, the thoracobdominal belts, the, the heart rate and the pulse plethysmography. And I'm reading a study on those things and I'm just honed in on those. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing what you can see when you unfilter things and look for these kinds of so talk to me about um, the symmetry, about desaturation and resaturation and what that tells you. Yeah, so this is, has to do really with when you're looking at patients, again, our population for hypoglossal nerve stem is typically older, typically with cardiovascular comorbidities, often sent by cardiology. And then you look at, you worry about things like Hunter chain stokes breathing. And, you know, one thing we know about chain stokes, and often it's hypopnea, not apnea. Mm-hmm. That's why it's so challenging. But you see this really nice, symmetric desaturation resaturation profile and that usually accompanies the waxing waning breathing and uh, excursion belts and so when you see that uh, that's very different than the hyperpneic recovery breath from typical obstructive pathology where there's an asphyxic response to choking and all of a sudden you know they snort they arouse they wake up and you see this large recovery breath and then you see this very rapid resaturation like a check mark you know you've got mm-hmm. this sort of slow desaturation with a rapid resaturation, that's obstructive pathology. The smooth, symmetric desaturation, resaturation usually accompanies that crescendo, decrescendo breathing. And that is usually a red flag for central diathesis. So you said something earlier about, you know, using propofol for dice and does that emulate, you know, sort of natural sleep? And I think sometimes that's that's something that patients will ask me about. They say, well, that's not the same thing. <laughs> so tell me about that. And, and what are some of the, the downfalls of sleep endoscopy? You got it. So, you know, it's it's I would call propofol a model for sleep. It is not natural sleep. It is propofol induced sleep. The EEG signatures look like stage two, maybe even some delta waves that might tell you stage three. Um, but what we want to know primarily is, is it going to be predictive of outcomes? Is it going to mm-hmm. be helpful in the in this whole workup? And, you know, one thing uh, that we do, um, you mentioned about trying to look at, you know, what does it tell you or how do you, how is it different from natural sleep? Um, is that we try to understand uh, with propofol, we use something called a BIS or a bispectral index to try to target a certain sedation level. And that's important because mm-hmm. we actually see now with, um, we see central sleep apnea with propofol. And I see it, we actually had a patient that had undiagnosed central sleep apnea coming for Inspire. And sure enough, on the sleep endoscopy, we saw very clear waxing, waning, crescendo, decrescendo breathing. Huh. And it turns out they, there was an HST that was didn't pick it up and we got a PSG after the dice and showed chain stokes breathing and uh-huh. canceled from their inspire surgery. So it's amazing how propofol preserves certain reflexes um, that you would you would expect to see during natural sleep. And the same thing after a cough, sigh, or sneeze, 
we almost always see a central apnea mm-hmm. <laughs> on propofol. You know, and it's the same thing when you expel your CO2 and you drive below the apneic threshold, like you would, let's say, with a yawn or transitional events of sleep, you see central apnea. So I was sort of mm-hmm. not a believer in propofol when I start, came out of training, but I've become more uh, appreciative of propofol and <laughs> preservation of sort of sleep-related reflexes. Um, and then what, what we're seeing is fairly representative. How do you manage the patient who just can't tolerate the voltage that they need? Yeah, so um, one of the things is that I will say there's rarely a magical threshold for Inspire. I think we are told bit by industry that just like CPAP, if you get the patient high enough, Mm -hmm. we'll generally treat the sleep apnea. That's not true for Inspire therapy. There are patient selection criteria that tell you that typically at low voltages, they'll do pretty well. And if you're having to increase it so much, probably this therapy will never work. That's, mm. Let me start by saying that. Mm. But there are a subset of patients, I have a couple in my practice, that if I could only get them to 2.2 volts, <laughs> like they were able to tolerate an N3 sleep on their sleep study for 10 minutes. Now with N3 sleeps, so maybe that was a part of the issue why they were therapeutic, but I have this there are some things that suggest that they could tolerate higher levels, they would do better. Um, that's a problem. And mm. there's, you have a couple options. Uh, one is you can try non-BZRAs, things like Ambien. I've done that before to kind of get them to the point where they can tolerate it. Uh, so deepen their sleep um, and their overall arousal thresholds. But more commonly, we'll try adjunctive therapy like side sleep. Mm. And, you know, one of the things about Inspire is um, it's very common to have people that still don't do well on their backs. And in my mind, if you can get them to sleep on their side, you drop their collapsibility by several centimeters of water pressure. And usually that with Inspire uh, can, can be adequate. So can you do hybrid therapy with low-dose CPAP and Inspire? Uh, technically, you can. Um, huh. But... Uh, so some of my colleagues are believers in this. Uh, I have not had a lot of success uh, with this. That The idea, I think what you're saying, Seema, is that you would use hypoglossal nerve stim to reduce CPAP requirements. Right. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I find that to be, um, to be uh, idealized. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, and that, you know, oral appliance therapy and CPAP therapy, I've seen that work. A handful mm-hmm. of times actually mm-hmm. um but with inspire remember it's 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 phasic so it only comes on with inspiration and then, you know the timing is not always so good with this device so i can't reliably say it only turns on the start of inspiration so you're dealing with a couple dynamic things here um and i just don't typically i, I just don't see that the cpap is going to be helped by uh you know simultaneous inspired therapy mm. So what else is new? What's coming up in this area? Um, well, there are um, different types of neurostimulation that's coming out. Um, there's this interesting, something called anthocervicalis stimulation, which um, helps pull the hyoid bone down. So think about the airways being, you can dilate the airway by pushing the tongue forward. You also can pull down on the laryngeal tracheal complex to try to help stiffen the airway so you can mm-hmm. dilate and stiffen so that's an interesting idea of combination therapy where you can stimulate the tongue and stimulate the sort of callus to get two vectors of of tension on the airway um 
And then there are other treatments that are, you know, Inspire or actually hypoglossal stimulation devices like Nixoa and uh, Livanova that are doing different variations of hypoglossal nerve stimulation. So you're talking about um, our colleague David Kent's work, right, with Ansa cervicalis? That's right. That's really interesting. It is. I mean, some of the, the videos that he's shown are, are very compelling. And I think, again, it's finding the right patients that would benefit from this. Um, and that's, I think, where we're really directing the research is trying to understand the underpinnings of the patient's pathology to figure out what might work. Mm. So any final thoughts for us? Um, no, I, I mean, I, I think final thoughts would be that uh, there's a lot that we don't know. And, um, you know, one thing with when it comes to patients is understanding, you know, what is causing their sleep apnea. I give patients a handout, what is causing my sleep apnea, try to help them understand it could be your bony cage, could be your soft tissue, could be your muscle tone. And we're going to try to understand that better with our CT scan, sleep endoscopy, and sleep study. And then hopefully that'll help paint the picture for the PAP alternatives patient as far as what treatment they need. Well, thanks so much for joining us today and helping us understand more of the nuances surrounding hypoglossal nerve stimulation. Thank you for having me, Seema. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.